0: This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. As many of our listeners are undoubtedly aware, whenever you bring up natural law to a crowd of skeptics, a healthy percentage of your audience will accuse you of using the cover of natural law to be anti-woman. Sometimes it feels like full-time work correcting that error. But for our guest on today's episode, it actually is. Continuing our theme of dispatches from this fall's Catholic Bar Association annual conference, we're pleased to be joined by another one of the figures from the conference, Erica Bakiyaki. Erica is a legal scholar specializing in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics. A 2018 visiting scholar at Harvard Law School, she is also a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Mass., where she founded and directs the Wollstonecraft Project, named for the 19th century feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. Her newest book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, was published by Notre Dame University Press in 2021 and was named a finalist for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's 2022 Conservative Book of the Year. We get into the subject of her discussion at the Catholic Bar Association Conference. We hope you enjoy the program. Erica, we are delighted to have you on our Anchoring Truths podcast. Can you tell us a bit about how you understand the basic framework for the rights of women in the natural law tradition?
1: Sure. So I guess some background would be the recent book I just published with Notre Dame University Press called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, in which I basically want to show that there's two competing strains of women's rights in America kind of the American tradition or American history. Um there's one that we sort of think of today <laughs> as the regnant strain, and that's actually what most people think of women's rights generally, which is what I call the auto. Economy account. Um in my book, I really um see it as coming up from John Locke and John Stuart Mill and generally the early modern thinkers. And I basically show this strain that moves through uh, different aspects, especially Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but then in the first wave of feminism, but then into Ruth Bader Ginsburg's thought. And what I'm trying to do is contrast that account with um, one offered by Mary Wollstonecraft, the 18th century uh, English philosopher that Mm -hmm. comes through – a greater number of 19th century women's rights advocates um including those that we don't hear as much about which we can talk about why that may be i have a big theory for that but lucretia mott sarah grimke and others um and then my claim in my book is that it's kind of i'm offering a counterfactual as if we had followed this kind of strain of an understanding of women's rights up to the modern day that we would have ended up with someone like marianne glendon who is now emeritus um, law the, professor the at sainted, Harvard the Law saint,
0: School. The sainted Mary Ann Glendon to that's some of right. us. So that's kind of the theory.
1: <laughs> and in the book, I actually don't use the term natural law, I think, at all. Um, but I'm very w- much working within the natural law tradition. And the way you would know that and what we'll I'm sure talk about is because what I'm doing is showing how rights and duties are really um always interwoven in, right. in that earlier account. In the Wilson Craftian account that goes up through, you know, the first wave, well, rights and duties always are necessarily correlated. Um, and they're correlated in different ways, which we can talk about. And that that all the sort of Obligations that are that that make you know you're talking within a natural law framework, kind of go away to some extent um, in that that autonomy account, or they're sort of built on. They try to build them on and sort of through contract and all of that, but they're not intrinsic to an understanding of rights as the natural law account is.
0: Yeah, and uh, something that struck me when you were offering these remarks to the Catholic Bar Association audience that was gathered was that. There was a real hunger for this type of lens. Why do you think this moment is crying out for the kind of? I mean, I think your project is largely restoration, um, not something revolutionary or new. Um, why is? You know, correct me though if you understand your project differently. But uh, if if I'm right, why do you think your moment? Why do you think this moment is crying out for this approach?
1: Yeah. So there's, you know, it's funny to think of it as restoration in a way. I think that's true in the sense that the natural law principles are certainly something that we are taking from, you know, both, you know, the pre-modern tradition. However, in its application to women's rights, um, certainly I'm pulling the strings from an earlier time, but also applying it to questions that are very different today. And that's what the natural law account is so able to do. Right. It's it's universal principles that we Um, understand from who we are as human beings, but applied very dynamically to diverse concrete situations, which, you know, the situations we find ourselves today in a tech mediated world are very different, even from, you know, those who are working at the very beginning, you know, who are articulating a natural law ground for women's rights um, at Seneca Falls, and then even Mary Wollstonecraft who are working during the Industrial Revolution when liberalism is first, you know, meeting kind of <laughs> capitalism and, and all these kinds of new questions, new material conditions. So I do think in terms of the principles, it's a it's it's restoration, but in terms of application, because natural law is always dynamic, it's going to be always new, which I think is very exciting. Um, why mm-hmm. is there a hunger well, I think partly the hunger comes from really the way in which a false account, a false anthropology, a false a false account of what we are as human beings, I think comes right up of the way in which women's rights have been in particular understood, because a lot of this we start to see um, when we have a constitutional, quote, right to abortion, mm-hmm. because that at its very root is always grounded in the autonomy account. In fact, it makes no sense when you think about it from within this account of rights as correlative with duties. So, I mean, to spring right to it, and then I want to say a couple more words about why why it is I think that this there's a lot of hunger to spring right to it is that, you know, those first women's rights advocates from Mary Woolstcraft to, again, those those you know 19th century women's rights advocates, all were morally opposed to abortion, all understood abortion as the unjust taking of human life, but they also all understood that, that parents mothers and fathers owe duties of care to their children and that those extended of course to the children who were developing in their mothers wombs they understood the embryology mm-hmm. <laughs> they they knew the science in the in the mid um 19th century and so they were applying it at that, at that time and saying look women have rights in order to carry out those duties of care to their children just as men do um and so they weren't just sort of these abstract mythic autonomous human beings who had rights they were they were very much embedded in their responsibilities always and so that's why they were making claims for rights was not to you know for autonomy to escape um those kind of Obligations, but in order to carry them out. So it would really be kind of philosophically incoherent to claim for those 19th century women that you could have a right to take the life of your unborn children when you had those rights. You were making claims for those rights because of those interwoven duties of care you owed to the children. So that's why I think it's important because once you have in the uh, right to abortion that's been claimed as a women's right, and really in the American context, the fundamental women's right. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. they have become nearly synonymous in our time um, that the autonomy framework is the only thing you're resting on. And then everything has started. Everything is built from there. Um, And so I think that's why it's a real corruption of law, (laughs) as you know, you all talk about a lot. Um, Okay, but there's another reason I think people are hungry. And that's because there's many people, I think, on the political right Who have seemed to want to share in the natural law approach. So I think there are those who would have some sort of, you know, they think kind of allegiance to a natural law kind of account, but they are assuming that rights per se and women's rights in particular are always grounded in the autonomy view, are always coming out of the early moderns, and they don't understand that there's a natural law account of rights. So they basically, throw out the idea of rights altogether. And so you now have conservatives who are really starting to make claims about even suffrage. I mean, I realize these are fringe kind of people, but there are people who are 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 really trying to look askance at the idea of rights. Certainly, those have been around for a long time, but also women's rights in particular.
0: Oh, no. So anybody, that it- anybody that's lurking on Twitter will see the people that hold up the Electoral College map of the United States saying, if only men voted, look how well Republicans would do. And of course, this is, you know, the worst kind of like LARPing and fantasy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. So that's so that is there's a rising kind of anti-feminism on the right. And I get it. I mean, I get that it's in response to you know, the regnant feminism that's been around now for a long time. And so people think it's really the only way to view women's rights. And they're very wrong about that. And so I think that's why, you know, those people in the room at the Catholic Bar Association, many of whom are women, but also many of whom are men who have daughters or wives or whatever, who want to make sure that they're <laughs> that not only are women's rights upheld and understood, but that they are also grounded in a in an account of what it is to be human and male and female and all of that.
0: Let's get into the heart of the presentation that you made, which is the discussion of uh, correlative duties as well as rights. And you kind of put this under the umbrella of use, I-U-S, um, you know, the, uh, the Latin term. What are, in your view, legitimate versus illegitimate uh, Aquinas would call it, uh, determinaciones or instantiations of the natural law in our, you know, either our positive law or regulations, like what do you define the encouragement or the fulfillment of duties in our law? And the reason why I ask you this is because we, I think, too often look at rights, but we don't look at legal duties that come as part of the package.
1: Right. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's important to note um, the sort of background argument that I'm making, which, you know, many of your listeners, I think, would certainly be aware of, but, you know, that we have this idea that we have this kind of Lockean founding, and there's a way in which certainly there are many, you know, Lockean elements to the founding, um, obviously, the natural right to revolution, and all that, but that that's not the whole story at the American founding, that there's, um, there is this communitarian counterbalance that comes about through the, the common law background or backdrop to the constitution that is in all states and localities through just basic, you know, private law, um, you know, contracts, torts, property, all of that. And that's all really bound up in a natural law understanding of human beings as being embedded and responsible to one another. And so when you start, when you, when you're taking, you know, as a first year law student, you're taking all those kind of courses, you're always thinking about duties and rights and and how they sort of accord with one another. And I think that would have been much more even especially true before the turn towards statutes, when American lawyers at the, at the founding were thinking about, you know, and working within the common law, there's always questions of rights and duties, and they're always correlative. Um, so, you know, the thing that I think the most about is having to do with um, duties of care in the family, because that is just where my expertise lie. And so it seems to me that it is, it goes without saying, and I think you can get pretty much everyone to agree with this, (laughs) regardless of where they stand on something like abortion, that you can get people to start thinking about the duties of care that mothers and fathers have to their children. Mm -hmm. And that is just something that is so implicit in how people think about our obligations to one another, that of course, mothers and fathers who brought a child into existence have duties of care to that vulnerable and dependent child and everybody thinks that and so that is you know one of the one of the great lines um uh from you know the the early American commentator, legal commentator, James Kent, is the universality of the sense of a rule or obligation is pretty good evidence that it has its foundation in natural law. Hmm. And, you know, one of the ways I would just think about it, too, in terms of the natural law thinking is that I think, and, you know, there are disagreements among, or maybe not disagreements, but the ways you come at this from different, you know, people within the, you know, natural law tradition writ large, um, and there are lots of different, you know, competing, um, competing philosophies or whatever. I think that you really need to think first and foremost about who we are as human beings and the kinds of human beings, kinds of beings, a human, um, uh, creature is. And so to me, the natural law can't, or the law cannot, um, if it's going to be in accord with the natural law, contravene any of the basic, um, the basic characteristics of a human being, and so I name—I can name four. Maybe there are others, but these seem essential to me. And that is that we are rational, we are embodied, um, and sexually dimorphic. Um, but we are embodied, male and female. We are familial; like we all are raised within a family, necessarily, even if that family stinks. <laughs> mm-hmm. That we all have mothers and fathers, even if you know we're created in a petri dish. There's always a mother and father involved in some way, and we are social and that we need communities. And we see this in the loneliness epidemic, right? And so when any of those four basic, you know, constitutive properties of who we are as human beings are contravened by the law, then we are contravening the natural law is, and and the, and, and because all of those bring forth duties, right? So, I mean, this is really, Wilson Craft's really good on this, but as rational creatures, we have duties to seek the truth. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we have rights natural rights to learn right and so that was one of the claims that those early women's rights advocates had like we all have duties as rational creatures to to seek the truth and so we shouldn't be prohibited from a full and robust and, you know classical education for those early women's rights advocates mm-hmm. um and, and and it kind of goes on from there if that makes sense
0: yeah so one of the i think more delicious parts of your presentation was when you told us that you were on a podcast with the New York Times columnist uh, Ezra Klein and you had him pretty much agreeing with you every step of the way when you were discussing the um, uh, sort of the reasonable, principled grounds for why um, you know duties have to exist. But then once you kind of hit him with the substantive priorities that you think these duties are springing from, that's when he said, "Hold on, wait, wait, wait a second here." <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Is that a reflection of perhaps like your standard? capital l liberal as well as small l liberal um reaction to the framework that you've tried to articulate uh in audiences that aren't already you know sympathetic to the uh, uh arguments that you know you've just described
1: yeah i mean there's something about i think Maybe it's American progressives. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say I don't know really about how woke people think. I'm not sure there's a coherent understanding. But someone like Ezra Klein, or just general sort of either classical liberals on the left or the right, or just sort of progressive minded people, and I'd say definitely for, you know progressive minded people like uh, Ezra Klein, his whole theory of sort of of um, politics is really about. I think I mean, maybe I'm saying too much to maybe people know him better, but there is really a care and concern mm-hmm. for the vulnerable for um, you know, say like and, and that we that we're always like we owe duties of care to the poor we owe duties of care to our environment, right like we all that we owe duties of care to the worker that we owe duties of care to the you know to the immigrant like and maybe they wouldn't frame it duties of care. That's obviously a term of art with the law and especially tort law and things like that. But certainly they would say we have responsibilities and they, and even, I mean, think of, you know, the, the outcry, you know, you didn't build us, I guess maybe that was Romney or something. And Obama, uh, Like there's just a sense. yeah. Yeah. There's like a sense of, we all do this together, right? There's like a real kind of underlying now I'm not talking about like the full-on libertarians from either the left or right but for most people they know that they depend upon other people other dependent people uh, other people depend upon them and that we're all sort of knit together and mm-hmm. so just pointing those things out <laughs> is like there's this large swath of the political sort of i mean you know So those who disagree on all sorts of things, once you start talking about that and talking about what we owe one another, what do workers and employers owe each other? And you start talking in that way rather than sort of as these isolated individuals who are contesting against each other um, it's really helpful because you can make, you can get a long way toward talking about that. So I had mentioned too, that I was in a class at Boston university law school, reproductive justice class. And I, you know, was invited. There's maybe 20, Mm -hmm. 20, um, young women and men in the class, and they were all like bought and sold, you know, abortion advocates. And I just went in saying, I love the reproductive justice framework and here's why. And I spoke about the way in which, um, you know, justice is a really good way of thinking about what we owe each other and the way in which reproduction is asymmetrical and that there are duties that men and women owe each other. And then moving on to sort of an understanding of like prenatal justice, like what we owe the unborn child, just as we would owe, um, you know, a born child um, duties. And and it's just hard, like they just are back on their feet because they don't know how to justify really, when you're talking within that framework, how to justify ending the life of a child when you can't end the life of a born child, right? They want to shift over to the autonomy framework, but, 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 you know, and so I think it is just a helpful, it doesn't like win every, every debate or something like that, but it just is a helpful way to get into the natural law lens without obviously even using the term natural law, but you just start talking about what we owe, what do we owe one another? And progressives love talking about that. (laughs) You know, especially what the government owes, but, but I think even just what individuals owe each other, what families owe, you know, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and everybody's. That's why you know there's just something within each within each person, and this is the natural law that makes appeals every time. Make some, well, you know, everyone time someone makes an appeal to justice, they're making an appeal to the natural law, right? There's exactly. some higher justice with which they want to judge. So it's just a basic thing that we can all sort of talk about, and it doesn't mean we're going to agree on the on the on the sort of nitty gritty, but we can start kind of then talking about principles in a way that I think Americans can't right now. And when they're just moving ahead with autonomy rights and clashing these clashing autonomy rights.
0: Yeah, that's probably uh, right. That when we, especially when we you know, inevitably fall into what seems like the annual debates that center around whatever's on the Supreme court docket, there's sort of a playbook that we will have trotted out. And it, it's It's not a playbook that reflects the framework that you've just described, but it's a framework that, you know, becomes very convenient as a way to morph law into politics. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I think you do so well is something we like to do at the James Wilson Institute also, which is emphasize that you know law and morality are inextricably bound up and related to that idea centrally, is the idea that law can and should serve as a teacher. And oftentimes we hear uh, an adaptation of the late Andrew Breitbart that um, uh, culture is is uh, uh, downstream. Sorry, politics is downstream of culture. And so we popularly many people draw the inference that therefore then law is downstream of social phenomenon such as you know the culture. But it it's as Robbie George and others have, I think, successfully shown, it's a two-way street. That's right. We see notable examples from history where short-circuiting the political process, either through judicial uh, uh, rulings or how, for example, legislative enactments can change popular perceptions, right? The Civil Rights Act, flipping the, uh, the states uh, in the uh, you know former Confederacy on... Uh, the uh, subject of integration, same-sex marriage with the uh, judicial ruling. So I think what I'd want you to kind of plumb the depths of for our listeners is why does law have such a profound effect on culture, at least in, in America?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you say in America. <laughs> and this is something I really, I mean, learned from both Tocqueville and Mary and Glendon, I guess, is the best way to put it. Or Mary Glendon taught it to me through Tocqueville, and then I found it there as well. But there's a, <clears throat> there's a way in which um, we Americans, because we're sort of founded as an idea, <laughs> rather than as a united people by some sort of religious culture. I mean, obviously, Christianity is at the founding very centrally. But there also is a way in which we're founded as kind of an idea or an ideal Um, and because we've had like a really robust pluralism, our entire existence where different kinds of views, um, have come together, different kinds of religious views, and also different kinds of cultures, you know, different kinds of ethnic groups, all of those have come together. Um, and because we, you know, after, uh, uh, you know, the sort of changes in um, constitutional law where states couldn't have sort of established religions and all that, we become sort of a place where law takes this grand precedence as kind of our natural, our, our national religion. And so what the law says really like matters a lot for us, I think, as Americans, Um, you know, partly because of, you know, all we've been taught about, uh, you know, when we grow up, I don't know if maybe not taught anymore, but certainly in my kids' school, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and all of that, that we all just sort of, it's in our blood, right? That we, that the law really um, is fundamental to who we are as, as Americans, right? And equal under the law. Like this is just a fundamental American principle that we're equal under the law. So I think in that way, the law really does, and it's just kind of crazy to think that it doesn't. Um, impact the way people think about things. It's has certainly been true about abortion. I think there's no question about that. And so I think that the law gives us some indication of how the community at large thinks about the common good and about the goods and goods in general. And so... Um, one of the things that I really like about John Finnis's work that I've learned from him, um, I did a big study of John Finnis and Ernest Fortin, who is my teacher, um, that I published in the American Journal of Jurisprudence, which is um, just this kind of, you know, I think the common good is something that is a very confused idea in our time because too many of us think like Platonists, like we think that the common good is something kind of abstract above us it's like you know the form the common good in its form or ideal form or something when really the best way to think about the common good is kind of how i laid out before is that if each person is taking care of their own responsibilities in their own specific spheres um that's the way that they are carrying out the common good. And so the law in these all these private areas helps us to understand what are our responsibilities. So that's what family law does. Well, it used mm-hmm. to do. That's what um, you know, property law helps us understand our, our responsibilities. Um, I mean at least you know, in terms of all different places where our responsibilities at least used to be laid out in the in the law so that we could have some some account of how it is that we're supposed to take care of each other and and carry out those responsibilities and and so that's why and people do look to the law not entirely but it's not just to you know protect us from the bad man it is to give us a sense of what the good man who wants to follow the law ought to be doing right. and i think that that's a really important way of how it's a tutor and a teacher not in the way that parents are obviously but um but that it does shape the more our mores you know a lot and that we we would be foolish not to think that that were the case right for all the reasons for all the reasons you mentioned you know certainly um
0: right and 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 i think that notable examples from American history show that when law sort of gets over its skis beyond the culture, it undermines its own legitimacy. I mean, prohibition is a great example. um, But prohibition also featured (laughs) prohibition also featured an era where indeed there was less public drunkenness, there was less um, alcoholism. Um, And so this idea that look, if a law is too broad, general, um, or if it's, you know, too vigorously enforced, you're going to undermine other parts that are, sorry, constitutive of the common good. That's true. But these things don't just happen in a vacuum. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, indeed, there are uh, drawbacks um, and there are, um, you know, positive elements as well. But the whole point is that the culture gets shaped by the law, just as much as the law can then be shaped by the culture. And so, what parts of the law could get changed by the culture? Well, maybe what do you think about a law that may be passed in a statute quite broad, but then its application is done through very narrow either you know regulations or delegation to local authorities. do you think that that undermines the sweep of maybe a perfectly legitimate law that's been passed um, and has valid you know natural law underpinnings that it may be only, lightly enforced or does that maybe reflect a judgment that the that is present in a culture where you know what we have other substantive priorities and we're not going to let you know just one set of substantive priorities um override override in full the other
1: yeah i'm not sure if i know exactly what you're getting at but i would say if i'm i'm going to go where i think you are going mm-hmm. um you know there's a way in which um we have two different really important areas that, you know, I know best um, in where we've changed laws because of, of notable exceptions, and then those exceptions have swallowed the whole mm-hmm. and it has changed the whole fabric of how those areas are understood. So I mean, of course, divorce and abortion. So in both of those situations, you know, divorce was necessary for, say, with with the with fault divorce um when um there used there was a time when there were a lot of divorces happening because you know men and women would collude together, go to the judge and say, look, there's been fault. And here's how we'll show you, even when really there wasn't any fault, there was no adultery, there was no desertion, whatever, but really there were quote, ir- irreconcilable differences, right? And so there'd be some sort of legal or illegal collusion in front of the judge, and then they'd go and, and get their divorce done. And so, you know, theorists and law professors were looking at this and saying, this is just an, you know, abomination for, for how we, you know, respect the law. And so then, because of these exceptions, these exceptional cases where there was some collusion, and we wanted to uphold the you know dignity of the law, the laws were changed to allow well to to allow for for irreconcilable differences to be the cause for abort for for divorce. Excuse me, which brought us no fault divorce, mm-hmm. and this then changes how people think about marriage altogether. Over time, there's an idea that we can get out of marriage when we fall out of love instead of really working. Toward it, and so would it have been better had we just allowed the duties within marriage to stay, sort of really, sort of um, robust, and the rights with in marriage, of course, and then to allow for that kind of collusion occasionally, right? And and for that to be sort of on the side, and okay, you know, fine, that's happening, but to hold up a really. sort of robust understanding of marriage as something that's for life and monogamous and the way in which the law was teaching about that. Right. So the same thing happened with abortion, you know, where there's all sorts of reasons that doctors, um, you know, are wanting to do abortions for say mental health reasons, or um, because a woman just convinces them to, you know, the doctor feels sorry for them or whatever. And so, the doctors are feeling worried. So this is around the time before Roe during the abortion reform time, when the doctors are really pushing for more leniency with regard to abortion in the case of what they understand to be therapeutic abortions, right? So that we can have this, you know, not get our licenses taken away. And then, you know, uh, Black men goes and talks to all these doctors and realize at the Mayo Clinic and re- realizes, well, I got to do away with the whole thing. And then we change entirely what we understand to be the duties of care that women and men owe their unborn children, right? Because of those exceptional cases. Now, do I think the doctors were basically, you know, treating, well, anyway, there's a whole thing we could say Mm. about what those doctors were doing with regard to not taking seriously the moral agency of women and being able to you know, and, and calling upon men to their, to their own duties, but you, 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 you know, you, you basically turn the tables entirely on how we understand what it is to be pregnant, you know, what it is to be a mother, when motherhood starts, when fatherhood starts, all of that has changed by, by allowing those exceptions, um, to, to become the rule. And so law then changes and how the culture then understands those kinds of duties, is just gone and so i don't know i don't know if that's what you were getting at but those to me are important places where you know i on on the abortion question I'm not convinced at all that ha- if we had, you know, the most robust, you know, pro-life laws in every state that we would be able to, quote, abolish abortion. I really think that especially with regard to these kinds of intimate questions where a woman has a child inside her own body, she's gonna, we're going to have to go through the mom to get to the child. We're going to have to convince the mom that she owes mm. lovingly Duties of care. We're going to have to help her through, you know, making sure that the father knows he owes duties of care in order to make sure she's not, you know, finding a way for another, an abortion, you know, outside of the law. And I think that's just the case with abortion. So I think these kind of, I'd say, sort of zealots who want to, quote, abolish abortion just by doing it through the legal means are not going to get what they think they're going to get. And that's why I think we have a lot of backlash right now is because there is an understand an understanding that we have to be really changing an entire culture. Yes, through the law, for sure, but also through a culture that right now has a very false understanding of what it is to be a human being, of the of the need for mothers and fathers to care for their dependent children, of father's duties um, in pregnancy and in, you know, parenthood and all that. And all of that has been lost to us for the last 50 years. So there's a lot we have to do in terms of educating. And it's, it is the law that does that, but it's not only the law, for sure.
0: Aquinas said that the purpose of law is not to lead people to virtue suddenly, but rather <laughs> gradually. And mm. I think what you've just articulated is that if we seek only to change, for example, positive law, We are going to run into the limits of of positive law. And there's ways that we can change the culture through positive law, but you have to meet the populace where they're at. Um, I mean, you you brought up abortion. Um, If your polity is indeed going to be shaped at the margins by a six-week ban, then by all means, don't undermine the coherence of your position by pushing further than six weeks, but don't also, um, uh, you know, settle for something less. I mean, that's as ever the work of political life to find out where, you know, where the sweet spot is in each different polity. But that doesn't undermine the coherence of the basic natural law precept that, um, you know, we only take, uh, you know, life when it's justified. And, you know, Mm -hmm. abortion, of course, is the uh, unjust taking of life because it does not Um, provide a sufficient justification um, for the um, killing of that unborn child uh, in all but the most, you know, rare circumstances. Um, I actually had in mind the example Hadley Arcus likes to use um, where uh, you might have a, you know, this is family law. Um, In the context of family law, a couple that is uh, fighting over custody for children and um, one of the uh, parents is into BDSM. And mm. what do you do about that fact when it comes time for a custody hearing? Well, of course, there's nothing in the law that says you, you know, you can't be you know, into these kinds of things. Um, but then when it comes time to make a, a judgment, um, if this fact is known, indeed, this is not a wholly neutral um, uh, pursuit, like somebody that likes to go to the Mets or go to the Yankees games. And so the law can indeed teach in these kinds of subtle ways, even if the law is not going to be banning, you know, these kinds of practices uh, at one, you know, moment um, in the polity. Let's see if we can shift to some of the, you know, fine historical work that you did in your presentation as we, um, you know, come to uh, something of a close here. Um, you brought up Mary Wollstonecraft and uh, these. You know, figures that you um, discuss in your um, presentation, uh, I think are are very important. You're almost like you're vindicating uh, how right mm-hmm. they were <laughs> uh, well, before, well before our time. Um, why are these figures so important to inform our understanding of the evolution of uh, women's rights and to show that there isn't some kind of like inexorable march towards the individual who has been, you know, uh, liberated, um, so, uh, uh, like, you know, so on and so forth through each generation?
1: Yeah, so I'll say a few words about Wollstonecraft, but I think um, I really want to talk about the early Women's rights advocates in the United States, especially women doctors, because I'm just really fascinated by these women um, lately. But yes, my book is very much devoted. The first two chapters are devoted to Wollstonecraft. And I really do believe, you know, other scholars have claimed this, and I, I sort of borrow from their um their their sort of archival scholarship, but also um, you know, argue myself that uh the 19th century women's rights advocates you know, hung up Wollstonecraft's, you know, portrait in their offices. They reprinted her rights of women. They were it's very clear, especially at Seneca Falls, really relying on her thought um, because what she's doing is she's not calling. And, and remember, she's in enlightenment, working in at the time of, you know, enlightenment, Scottish enlightenment and, and elsewhere. But she's, her interlocutors are people like Burke and Locke and especially Rousseau. Um, and so she's really, she's really sort of knows their thinking and knows their state of nature claims and really is making her own claims that aren't based on this kind kind of mythical account but are very much based in sort of the concrete duties that men and women owe each other especially in the home and she's very interested in parenting and and talks a lot about mothers and fathers um and the the sort of duties the really public duties um kind of the dude the first duty of the citizen is Um, As a mother or father is to inculcate virtue in their children. And so she has this very high view of motherhood and fatherhood. Um, But those duties she views, um, you know, are, you know, basically, you know, because we are both men and women are rational creatures, and they Um, they're ordered toward virtue and wisdom. So she talks about, quote, rising in excellence by the exercise of powers implanted for that purpose. So the way in which we are rational creatures has an end, and that end, that telos of reason in us is excellence. It's moral and intellectual excellence. And so it's not just, you know, we're here, we have our, you know, calculating reason just to kind of fulfill our desires. No, it's it's to be excellent. You know, she has a real theory Mm -hmm. of, of what that looks like. And so virtue is very important to her Um, and virtuously carrying out those, those duties, you know, to um, ensure that, um, you know, one, one is, is, um, is uh, developing oneself through um, disciplining one's appetites. And she sees this important in both men and women, um, uh, for potentially distinctive reasons because of the different kind of vices that they that they um, are tempted with. Um, and she calls both men and women to all the virtues. She's really arguing against Rousseau's bifurcated kind of virtues where there are like feminine virtues and masculine virtues. Um, and she says, no, you know, virtue is an imitation of God and God's goodness. And so everybody, every human being is, you know, called to, to, you know, live out all of the virtues as much as they can. And that's what the family is for, is for helping them learn how to do so. So, our account of rights is sort of secondary to all of that, right? Mm. It's a, and I, and I think that that's, it's like how, it's like trying to ensure that women have the kind of education and then um, voice in politics and, and civic life and have, you know, following upon her, um, you know, joint property rights. Once we get to the place where, you know, men are now owning property, (laughs) um, and then, you know, everything's in their name, but they're wage earning and, um, women have become entirely dependent on them industrialization, very different from the kind of agrarian homestead. And so those, those early women's rights advocates are really advocating for women to have, um, have ownership of the kind of work that they're doing in the home and all that. And then of course, in the industrial workplace, that's a whole big long story. Um, But one of the things I talked a lot about in the presentation that you heard is these um, female doctors who were very much in line with, um, with Wollstonecraft and all the women's rights advocates and understanding that, you know, when a woman is pregnant, she owes duties of care to her child. And so there's kind of duties that, that, Um, men and women have before the sexual act, which are basically what we now, or what we then called chastity. And now maybe we call chastity, but sexual integrity or something like that. Um, and so they wanted to ensure that, um, men and women sort of lived in a way that would allow them to carry out their duties of care to their children. And the doctors are really impressive because they're trying to at the time. Now, remember this is just when the ratification of the 14th amendment is happening. And it's very much interesting to the account that's offered in the Dobbs opinion um, because these women are incredibly against abortion. (laughs) And um, what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying these early doctors, Dr. Um Anna Dunsmore French, Dr. Alice Stockham, who wrote a book that was published, hundreds of thousands of copies were published. It was translated into many languages, trying to educate ordinary women about fetal development and helping them to see that really, you know, the child's life and your responsibilities to the child don't ex- don't just exist when you feel that child through quickening, right? And so that they had all this responsibility to these to, to educate these women about fetal development. Um, and so it's sort of this crazy thing where you see these pro-choice advocates now trying to point back to these women and saying, "Look, quickening was the most important thing, right? Back then, when these women doctors, just like they were trying to correct and update coverture, you know, this idea that that you know all the property is owned by the man, they were also trying to update mm-hmm. um, because of advances in science the duties that women owe to their children and trying to help them see, like, you can't abort. <laughs> just you know, you can't think you don't have these responsibilities." Um, when just because you haven't you haven't felt the child. So that was a really, really important. I'll just read one quote of Anna Dunsmore French who and this was reported her the talk she would go and give women were reported in the revolution, which was Susan B. Anthony Elizabeth Katie Stanton's um paper. So she says, Few women, even among the educated and intelligent, realize that the embryo is imbued with the life element prior to the moment when its physical movements become conscious to her. And she said that there were all sorts of women who like fainted when they realized in the audiences they would faint because they realized what they had done to their uh- down to their children
0: oh wow oh yeah. wow well i mean what takes us from that moment then to the civil rights revolution slash <laughs> sexual revolution era i mean are, are we going to place all the fault in science and and the pill and its rapid adoption or I I had a conversation with Mary Harrington on this same podcast a few months ago, and she gave a very nuanced answer where she said that it was multi-causal, that, you know, the pill was just one of, you know, several different um, causes, even if it probably, uh, I hope I'm remembering her right, even if it probably was the the main driver, um, you know, there were plenty of, you know, influences uh, uh, setting the stage and then, um, you know, accelerators uh, at the time along with the pill.
1: Yeah, so Mary and I think quite um quite a lot alike on this. Um and a lot in a, a lot of ways and as she says on many podcasts when she when she's interviewed her first kind of section of her book is kind of a really brilliant popularization of of my book um which is, you know, an ac- more much more of an academic book. Um so I really appreciate her work and her friendship too. Um and I think, you know, there's a way in which you can really see Margaret Sanger and her, um, and the way in which she, uh, you know, wants to have a technological response to what I call, you know, sexual and reproductive asymmetry as a real shift. Um, because prior to that, the women's rights advocates are really seeing that, yes, there's sexual asymmetry and reproductive asymmetry. There are, based on our embodied differences, there are um, distinctive responsibilities that men and women have toward children and, and you know, different consequences in sex that are borne disproportionately by women. And so the responses in the, er, among the early women's rights advocates have a lot to do with virtue <laughs> and legal norms. So both moral and legal and social norms. Um, and when you get to Sanger, she really wants a tech solution. So is it just the pill? Well, no, it's all of the Baconian and Cartesian philosophy leading up to the way in which we could think that technology would be a good way to solve um, kind of human constraints. So there, I would say that there are f- huge philosophical precursor precursors, and you know some of the things I've been talking about in terms of of how we think about rights. There's also just material conditions, um, mm-hmm. and I don't mean just industrialization um, and kind of the rise of industrial capitalism and all and all of that. But there's a way in which um, uh, you know the 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 kinds of asymmetries. Um, and kinds of disproportionate consequences of sex to women, um, is a lot harder. And Mary talks really well about this. Um, when women are sent out into the workplace, especially the industrial workplace, very different from raising children, even if whoops, you know, we had another child and oh, this is hard in the agrarian setting where you're home and you're doing your work at home and your children are there very different from poor women being foisted into the industrial workplace with nowhere for their children to go. You know, I mean, it's just a very different situation where you start to see, you know, a lot of poverty that, um, and multiple people having multiple children. And that's what Sanger's really, you know, against, you know, when they their health cannot stand it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and and, uh, you know, um, and so that's what a lot of Sanger is responding to. But then we see a real turn in feminist theory that starts to, you know, again, on the philosoph- at the philosophical level tends to want to, um, you know, Really, put the blame, lay the cause for women's immiseration, inequality, all of that right on women's body and women's fertility. So, there is a way philosophically. I mean, you know, Mary will talk much more about material conditions. I talk about material conditions as well, but I really think ideas are big movers, right, of things, um, of how we see the world. And so, I think both things are going on at the same time, you know.
0: Well, we don't want to fall victim to the woody allen line i'm sorry i couldn't give you anything uh positively you accept two negatives uh i'd like to try and end our conversation on something like a hopeful note but do you see anything like beyond of course the you know the hunger for this when you've gone out and give speeches do you see any indicia of a culture particularly among um you know uh the, the american women who are in their twenties and thirties, in their you know prime you know marriage years and childbearing years, do you see anything like a renewed appreciation for taking on these you know maternal obligations and maternal duties, um, or at least being open to them? Or is this kind of a transition period where we either you know could could go we could go one of two ways in which you know we we continue to slide down the path of um, like radical autonomy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm always a person of great hope. I have a lot of wonderful children. (laughs) So, I mean, I think I look at them and their friends and, and always hope that, um, and other big families we know. I mean, I think those are those of us who really are dedicated to family life are doing a lot of kind of the heavy lifting and making sure that the culture, um, has you know understands these obligations we owe to one another and how important family life is. So there's a lot of us who are doing that. Um, I helped to found a classical school, so there's tons of families around us, um, which is mm-hmm. gives me gives me a lot of really great hope. The other thing I would say is there's I don't know if I would say that women um, young women on the whole are at all interested in care you know um, taking on maternal obligations in a general way like they would think about I want to be mothers. However, when they have children, they tend to really... Um, I would say, lean into it and see Mm. the ways in which their children change them. I think that's also true of men, especially just generationally speaking, that I see more and more men who want to really be deeply engaged in their children's lives. And you see this as both on the progressive side and among conservatives, not so much the trads who want only their trad wife to do all the, you know, everything, but, but even among traditional, at least traditional Catholics, there's, when you have a big family, men are, you know, doing just as much with their children as women. And it's really, really wonderful. And I think um, admirable to see so many families who are coming together in that way. Um, and just sort of thinking of the family as a joint project um, that, you know, they do together and raising their children as something that they do together, you know, and, and not thinking so much um, about the different sort of obligations they have to the workplace. That I think is figured out each family on their own, but especially in the family that they they see Everybody is having really important obligations to each other. I mean, one thing I would say is that there's a pushback, at least, I mean, you see this with the really great... You know, way in which Louise Perry's book A Case Against the Sexual Revolution was read by so many people so I think there's a way in which people are just sick of the casual sex culture but maybe they're just not having sex at all which is of course a problem Um, I would definitely send your listeners to our new online journal um, at the Wilson Craft Project at the Abigail Adams Institute which is called Fair Disputations F-A-I-R-E-R Disputations which is a project that Mary Harrington Louise Perry Nina Power Abigail Favalli Leigh Labresco, Angela Franks, Helen Roy, others that you, you know, may or may not know other women who are all coming together sort of um, to think about a, um, we're really sort of pushing forward a new school of thought within feminism. Um, You know, that word is something that's, I think, hard for some people to to grapple with, because I think it just means simply, you know, abortion and hatred of men or something. And we obviously are grounding it in a much older understanding of how I've how I've kind of articulated it today. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to mention too, is if people want to read the, um, the, uh, presentation that you and I keep talking about, it's going to be up. I'm not sure if before or after this podcast is up, but at the new digest, which is, um, a, now I think a new blog of, um, classical legal theory. So you can read the whole thing. I think maybe next week or something. Yeah. Late, late November. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Erica Bakayaki, this was a real treat, and uh, this definitely builds off of the um, talk you gave at the Catholic Bar Association, compliments it wonderfully. And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, um, uh, we will make available links to uh, the new digest, that a uh, piece that Erica just mentioned, um, as well as uh, all of the resources that she shared. Uh, this was a ton of fun and um I'm sure not the last time uh, we will hear from you on this wonderful occasion of, of course, your book, but then also the uh, the work that um, you just seem like you're the energizer bunny. Blink and there's something new that Erica you've you've written. It's uh, it's fantastic. So thank you very much for joining us on our podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Garrett, for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.